This morning I invite you to turn back to the book of Titus, specifically chapter 2, as we continue our October series entitled, A Church in Order. Paul is writing to Titus, and he's establishing some principles that Titus is to install and instill in the churches on the island of Crete. And we are taking this month to acknowledge that we, though room for improvement is there, we are a church in order. This coincides also with what we're doing on Wednesday nights as we look at the nine marks of a healthy church. And we've said there as we've begun that study, we want to be a healthy church as the Bible defines health. And we want to be a healthy church on purpose. We don't want to just stumble into it. We want to honor God by seeing what He would have for us to be about as a church and then to do it in obedience and to do it in worship. And so this morning, we're going to continue in looking at what a church in order is to be about, what a healthy church looks like. Last Sunday, as we were together, we saw the importance of selecting qualified men to be elders and to serve in the church faithfully. We saw that last week, character is king in the life of an elder. It is primary. And the qualifications of a man are found in his character, not necessarily his skill. But there is one skill that a man is to exercise. There is one task and one duty that a man as elder is to exercise, and that's this ability to teach. And so we've seen that with character qualifications also comes this task, this qualification to perform the task of teaching. And we saw specifically in verses 9 through 16 of chapter 1 that that teaching role and responsibility, that teaching task has two features to it. One is the ability to teach sound doctrine from this book. And the other is to refute those and silence those that teach falsely from this book. So we saw last week, that's the responsibility and that's the character of a man that is an elder. This morning we asked the question, what about the rest of us? What about you that are not serving as an elder in this church? What is your role? What contributions are you to make in this church? The, the question arises, are you to be a consumer in church? Are you to consume and partake in sermons and consume music and consume the ministries and receive service in these areas? Or are you to actually be a contributor in these areas of ministry? Is there a role that you're to play in the life of the church? I think you would understand this morning based on where we've been for years. Yes, there is a role. And so this morning I want to ask you how important is that role for you specifically to play in this, the congregation of Rocky Point Baptist Church. The role of biblical elders is to fulfill what Paul also wrote to another church, the church in Ephesus. Because there in the letter to Ephesus, Paul gives instructions to the church. And it goes like this in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. Listen closely. 
Paul says that God gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Right there is the eldership. Shepherd teachers. He gave the elders for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We cannot miss this. The work of the ministry is not to be done solely by the elders, the shepherd teachers. They are to shepherd and to teach in such a way that they equip the congregation as a whole to do the work of ministry. It takes a church to live in a fallen world. It doesn't take elders to live in a fallen world. It takes a church, and a church is the body of Christ, the collection of saints, the believers in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that this work of ministry that the saints are to be equipped to do is for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, the church. And it's to be done until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And we're to arrive at mature manhood, manhood and womanhood, in this knowledge of the Son of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we're to do this in the fullness of Christ so that we as a congregation and as individuals are no longer children, spiritually speaking. We're not to be tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Because children, spiritually speaking, can be misled. But we're to be equipped for the work of the ministry and we are to grow and mature manhood and womanhood, spiritually speaking, so that we're not blown around by false doctrine. And then we are deliverers of sound doctrine to one another and to a lost world. So we see here that from this, there is a distinct and important purpose for the congregation in a local church. It's not elder-driven. It's elder-led. It's congregationally driven. We are to all partake in the work of ministry. And elders are to equip the saints... And the saints are to do the work of the ministry. And Paul in Titus chapter 2 shows us what this looks like in his instructions to Titus as he is to pass these things on to the churches on the island of Crete. So look with me at Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's read the whole chapter real quickly. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves or bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, 
not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in the everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Father in heaven, we entrust our minds and our hearts to your guidance now through the agency of you, God, the Holy Spirit. Would you open our eyes and soften our hearts to embrace all the truth that is found in these cherished verses. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So today... God turns our attention to the congregation in a church that is in order. Just as character mattered last week in the life and selection of elders, we're going to see this morning that character matters amongst all of us in the congregation. Christianity does have a character requirement, but that character has got to be born of and come from sound doctrine that's found in the Word of God. So just as elders are to teach sound doctrine, so members of the congregation are to do so as well. We all are to be proclaimers and providers, and we are to protect one another with sound teaching and sound doctrine. Last week, yes, we saw the importance of biblical eldership, but this week we are instructed on the importance of congregational discipleship. That's what this text is about disciple-making amongst the congregants. So in this passage here, starting in verse 2, Paul addresses five groups of people in the church. We've got older men and older women, younger men and younger women, and then employees. That's what bond servants is in the context of our present day. Employees. And we are given instructions in these five categories of people. We need to look at them quickly, one by one, starting with older men. Men, I want you to take a look at verse 2. And I want you to understand that this is specifically addressing you and expectations that God has placed on you and me as we live in the congregation that is Rocky Point Baptist Church. I want you to get very specific and very applicational as you look at these character qualities that God requires of us. You need to understand that there are people around us in this room that are desperate for us to live these character traits out. How you live and conduct yourself has wide-ranging impact across this room and even the people that aren't here today. So Paul says to Titus and to us as well, 
Older men are to be sober-minded. I'll give you a quick rundown of what each of these means. Sober-minded. Men, we are to discern moral right from moral wrong. Soberly. We're to think soundly. We are to discern God's will, and we are to make biblically wise decisions because there are many people that are affected by the moral decisions that we make in our life. When we make bad decisions, there's collateral damage. And churches are desperate for men to make biblically wise moral decisions. We're to be dignified. We're to take no delight in inappropriate behavior. We do not like coarse joking. We do not like vulgarity. We are to be dignified and we are to clothe ourselves in the dignity of Jesus Christ. And we are to celebrate only what is what is holy and right and pure. We're to be sound in the faith, men. We are to know what we believe about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we're to know why we would believe that. And we are to know what to do with our sound belief in Jesus Christ, God the Son. We're to be loving. We're to be identified as one who loves God first and therefore loves neighbor as a result. We need to love both God and neighbor. We cannot love one and hate the other. And finally, men, we need to be steadfast. And oh, our families and our congregation is desperate for us to be steadfast. We must never give up the hope in Jesus Christ that we have. We must endure testing. We must endure hardship and disappointment. We must withstand adversity. And we must be found faithful through thick and thin to keep the faith until the last day. The last day that we draw breath or the last day that Christ comes again. These are the characteristics of a godly older man in the congregation. Paul then takes us in verse 3 to older women. Mature women. Ladies, we're desperate for you to embody these character qualities. Men and women alike in this room are desperate for you to embody these. Young ladies especially are desperate for you to live these traits out amongst us. Ladies, you're to be reverent. Your life must reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Your life must be marked by the pursuits of holiness and purity. There will be times, just as with older men on the character traits, that we will fall short. We must be defined as a people who are quick to repent and to climb right back on the trail that leads us to, in this case, ladies, reverence. In the name of Jesus Christ. Ladies, you're not to be slanderous, Paul says. Never are you to make false accusations. Never are you to embrace or promote gossip. Never are you to perpetuate lies. You're to snuff these things out when they get to you. And you should never be the initiator of such. Ladies, you're not to be a slave to wine, Paul says. We can expand this. You're to control your appetite for food and for drink. You are not to be addicted 
to any things such as these. To be temperate, not enslaved to addictions. And ladies, you're to be a teacher of good. You are to be able to teach in sometimes formal settings, but most often informal settings. This is a call for you to be teaching woman to woman, instructing one another, peers and younger, into sound doctrine and the faith that has been delivered once and for all to the saints. And you, as this verse says, are to especially pay attention to giving sound instruction. You are to be a teacher of good, especially to young women. They are to learn under your teaching by word and by example. Younger women, in verse 4, you are to love your husbands. And if you have not been given a husband by God yet, you're to be preparing for such. You're to love your husbands. Your first commitment under your relationship with Jesus Christ is to the man that God would entrust to you. And so you are to make him a priority in your relationships on earth. You're to love your children. If God would grant you children, you are to love them. And this is not merely to just have affection for your children. That's pretty natural for a mother. Child labor and carrying a, a baby in your womb for nine months bonds you, but you're to have more than affection for your children. You are to have devotion, a love of devotion towards your children. You're to be devoted to love them and to nurture them physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You're to love them in such a way that you would point all of those things, physical, emotional, and spiritual traits, you're to point all of those things in your children to Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate way that you could love them. Young women, you are to be pure. You are to be a one-man kind of a woman. You're to give yourself to one man. Before you are blessed with that man and while you are blessed with that man, you are to give yourself only to one. And I'm speaking in two terms here. Yes, physically. But ladies, you need to guard your emotions and you need to make sure that your emotions are devoted only to one man. And that's a challenge for you. It's a temptation, a source of temptation always. Ladies, you are to be one who works at home. Now, let's be careful here. This does not prohibit a career. We do not take this to say women should not work outside of the home. But what we do with this is we say that even if you have a career outside of the confines of your home, you must not neglect the unique management responsibilities that you have at home. As you go in many ways, so goes the household. And you are not excused from managing a household well because you have a career. Because your first responsibility is at home. No matter what God has you doing outside of it. And you cannot neglect it. Ladies, you must be kind. Here's some words that should be associated with you. And you need to strive for these. And I know conviction is going to come as you hear these, but you need to be gentle. 
You need to be considerate. You need to be gracious. You need to exercise these traits towards your husbands first and your children a very close second and all the people in this congregation and all the people that you will encounter in the world. You need to be one who is kind. And lastly, Paul circles us back to this husband relationship. You're to be submissive to your own husband should God grant you one. Now this word submission is a is a battlefront word in the culture that we live in. We always have made an effort here to describe submission from a biblical perspective, not a worldly perspective. Submitting to your own husband does not make you inferior to him. We believe in a relationship with a husband and a wife that is complementary. You are to submit to your husband, Paul says, as as the church submits to Christ, and a husband's to lay his life down for his wife as Christ laid his life down for the church. And so there's this complementarianism where a man and a woman complete each other, fulfilling their unique roles. And so while men lead, women submit, but not in an inferior way. And look at what he says, submit to your own husband. Paul says this every time he gives instructions to wives. The instruction here is not to submit to men. That's called chauvinism. You're to submit to your own husband. Because the gospel is going to be portrayed in that submission. And you're going to show the world what the church submitting to Jesus Christ looks like. Then we go in verse 6 to younger men. The instruction here is that younger men... Or to be urged to be self-controlled. Now listen, this idea of self-control is woven through older men, older women, younger women, and now we get it also here in younger men. Let me, let me treat self-control, yes, in the context of younger men, but let me address self-control for all of us. Because we're all called to self-control. We must have our passions under control. And young men, you need extra help on this. I've been one before. But we all need to be under self-control. We must all be disciplined in how we use our time. Oh, We must all be disciplined in how we use our emotions, our resources. And we know what it looks like when someone lives out of control in those areas, don't we? It's ugly. We must be honorable and self-controlled with our thoughts, young men, and all of us. We must be self-controlled in our words, and man, that's hard in youth and adulthood. And we must be under control with our actions. We've hit a verse in Proverbs often in the last couple of years. Proverbs 25, 28. Write that down in your notes. It's short. Listen to it. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I think you know what that means. That's a vivid 
clear, understandable, short verse of Scripture. A man or a woman, a a person without self-control, without it, is like a city that is broken into and left without walls. A city without walls, in the ancient days that these scriptures were written, was a vulnerable city that would be ransacked. Much like Jerusalem was when Babylon attacked under the sovereign hand of God. Self-control is a wall around us. And it prohibits the adversary that's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It prohibits the adversary from breaking into us and leaving us vulnerable to all kinds of ruin and destruction. We all need self-control. And that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll come to that in just a moment. It's not self-control, it's Self-control in Christ. It's Christ-control. We're to be men, young men, models of good works. He's speaking to Titus here and ultimately through Titus to young men. We are to understand that our example in how we conduct ourselves really, really matters. It really matters what we do and what people see in us. We must model good works. And with that, we must also, young men... Teach with integrity, dignity, and soundness. There's a teaching responsibility, even with young men here. And it's a teaching responsibility that's with older men and women and younger ladies. Our actions, when we model good works, must match our teaching, which must be full of integrity, dignity, and soundness. And that way, our Christian life is above reproach qualifications for elders yes but qualifications for members of the church absolutely the fifth group is employees bond servants is the term paul uses this is modern day employees bond servants are to be submissive to their masters or their managers or their bosses We are to submit to managers, but there are four exceptions that we are not to submit to them in the event that they ask us to be unbiblical in something, illegal in something, immoral in something, or unethical. We are never to submit to the point that we are sinning against God. But outside of those four exceptions, we are to be people who submit to our employers. We're to be well-pleasing at work. We're to go the extra mile. We are to do our job plus some extra amount. That's what it means to be well-pleasing at work. We don't do the minimum or fall short of the minimum. We go beyond. We are not to be argumentative at work. We are not to talk back. We are not to be contrarian as we receive instruction. We are not to be To put it in labor terms, a stiff-necked horse that resists the bridle and the bit. As long as we're not called to sin and defy God, we are to delight in submitting to our bosses. We are not to pilfer 
Paul says. We're not to rob from our employers. And we can rob by fudging our timesheets. You can rob by not giving a full day's work for a full day's wage and benefits. You can rob from our employer on the expense account forms that we submit. We can rob from our employer by taking resources and assets for personal use. We're not to pilfer at work. And finally, even at work, we're to be faithful. We're to show all good faith in what we do at work. And I would say that this faithfulness has got to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. And if we're faithful to him, we'll be faithful to our employers. Because in Colossians 3.23, Paul writes, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So even though you have a boss, you're not working for that boss. You're working for the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to get a heavenly perspective on what you're doing at work. And you need to know that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. doesn't matter what that boss gives you. When you work heartily for the Lord, not for man, you will be rewarded with an eternal inheritance that is unspeakably glorious and valuable. And he finishes by saying, at work, I'm putting those parentheses in, at work, you are serving the Lord. So there's five people, groups, that Paul is addressing to Titus, through Titus. I I think I said this two weeks ago, this letter to Titus is really an open letter to the churches in Crete. He is to take this letter and he's to go into churches and he is to go to elders and say, look at my instructions here. This is to be read out loud and shared with the congregations. And in it, Paul is giving him authority, and in it, Paul is giving instructions to the people of the churches. We're reading the letter out loud at Rocky Point Baptist Church in 2018. God designed this letter to be read in all of his churches. Now, before we move off of these five people, we want to circle back. And I want to show you the great purpose behind why we are to live out these character qualities. It's not just because it'll make life happy for everyone and better for you. There's a great purpose that God inspired Paul to give us these instructions. It's cited basically three times in three different ways in verse 5, verse 8, and verse 10. Look at verse 5, the very last phrase before the end of the sentence. Speaking in in this context to young women, but this applies to all of us across the board. We're to display these character qualities so that the word of God may not be reviled. Man, the stakes are high, aren't they? Our behavior in all of these arenas, for these five people, and all of us are at least one of these, if not two, our behavior is going to reflect on the Word of God. So we need to take this real seriously. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it kind of deal for the Christian. If our character doesn't match our teaching, our hearers will revile us, 
And when they revile us, they will revile the word of God that we proclaim to believe in. May that never be counted amongst us. Our conduct has a huge impact on our evangelism. It even has a huge impact on the evangelism of other people that will talk to the people in our lives. Because if our example contradicts the word of God, those people will revile the word of God and have no interest in it. And you do not want that credited to your name in the end days. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Okay, persecution's coming. We're going to be reviled. But we must not be reviled because of our character that contradicts the word of God. Jesus went on to say in verse 20, They hated me, Jesus Christ, without a cause. We must also be a people that are despised and reviled without a cause. It'll come to us, but it not, must not come to us because we asked for it or deserved it. Look at verse 8. We're to have this godly character in our lives so that, at the end of verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. There it is again. The purpose for our behavior that comes from sound doctrine is that we do not want opponents, our gospel opponents, to have anything evil to say about us that sticks. Our character must squelch the accusations of our opponents. We must not give our gospel opponents a reason to shame us and therefore shame our message. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But listen to this. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We're to live out Titus 2, 1 through 10. So that no one can cause us to suffer because we deserved it due to the contradiction of our life to the word. Verse 10, last of verse 10. We're to have godly character so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We are to adorn the gospel. Our character must decorate the gospel. We don't add to it, but we are to complement it in such a way that it is beautiful. As they hear the beautiful words and they see the beautiful words lived out in our lives. We must complement the message of the gospel with behavior that reveals the beauty of the truth of the grace of Jesus Christ. So we are to be Philippians 2, 14 people. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's the adornment right there. We are to shine as lights in the world because we've got a lit up gospel that is pouring out of us in word 
in action. And the crooked and twisted generation cannot cast a stone at us, though they may not like our message. So the stakes are high in us living out these character qualities. We need to understand, it's said elsewhere by Paul, the gospel is very offensive to the world that we live in. Unrepentant sinners despise correction. They despise conviction. They despise being called to repent. They despise the threat of God's judgment for sins against him. They despise it. So the gospel is offensive. But too often we find in the world and even within the church that the gospel has been made more offensive because of the shame of the messengers that carry it. And that cannot be us. Period. Let's let the gospel be offensive on its own. And not add to it because we don't live it. That's urgent for us to hear. So we are to be called of sound character so that we don't con contradict the sound teaching that comes from the word of God. So there you have it. There's instructions. And let me tell you, that's a lofty list of things that we're to be about. And I know that you with me winced. Said, well, I've failed on that one and that one, and that one, and we've probably checked off every single one of these and said, oh. but what makes us unique is that we're, as Christian people, repenters. We still struggle in this flesh, even though we're born again. So we need to be faithful to repent when we come under the conviction of the sin of contradicting the instructions that God's given us in his word. But we need to understand something more than that. We can't just do this. If we just set out and say, okay, there's my list. I'm an older man. I'm going to do those things. We will be defeated by the end of the first 24 hours. Because we can't do these things to perfection. In fact, I'm going to tell you that, that in your own flesh, as a fallen human being, before being born again in Jesus Christ, you won't even have the desire to do these things. Much less the wherewithal to know how to do these things. And so starting in verse 11, I, I love verses 11 through 14 like I never have before because when you study to preach, you get intimate with the text and you see things that you haven't seen before. I want to show you the beauty of verses 11 through 14 as it relates to verses 1 through 10. Because this is a magnificent truth that God has shown us. What God demands of us in this practical living out of character, biblical character in verses 1 through 10, is grounded in what God has done for us and will do for us in verses 11 through 14. So God is the source of our ability to do verses 1 through 10. Watch it. Paul shows us, starting in verse 11 and also in verse 13, that we live in a period between two appearings. Circle the word appearing in verse 11. God has appeared in verse 13, the appearing of the glory. Circle those two words appearing. That's got to be circled in your Bible for 18 years from now when you go source this passage. You live, we live between two appearings. The first one is this, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, that's past tense by the way. 
We're looking backwards right now. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus Christ is the grace of God. And Jesus Christ has appeared. It's the incarnation. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus Christ in the flesh who lived a perfect life and served as a substitute on the cross, though he knew no sin, for your sins. And should you profess and believe that he died in your place, you get the benefit of his perfection. And you look back on the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. You get what you don't deserve, grace. You get considered righteous before God in Jesus Christ's substitution for you. But that requires belief in Him. Not mere mental assent, but belief and repentance. And some amount of grieving that you have wronged God, but He has made things right through your precious substitute Christ. You need to understand, and I think you've heard this plenty, but I want to remind you until the day the Lord returns, we, you, cannot be saved by your own strength, your own intelligence, your own ability. You need grace. And you have it. Because you can look backwards to see the incarnation of Christ and His crucifixion on a cross and His resurrection on the third day. And that is how you can embody these character qualities and have a desire to do it and an ability to do it. You have to be reborn as case necessary preached to us this morning in the waters of baptism. He preached to us. A young man to older men and older women. By grace, we are delivered from the power of sin on the cross of Christ. When he died, though he knew no sin, he conquered the power of sin and the bondage of sin that is holding us. And then we can be reverent and sober-minded and self-controlled and on and on and on. Because we're reborn. We've taken off the old self and put on the new self in Jesus Christ. By grace we were delivered by, from the penalty of sin. The power of sin was defeated on the cross. The penalty of sin is death. It was defeated in the resurrection on the third day. And we are to look back at those true historical events. And it's then that we can embody these character traits. Look at verse 11. The first word in verse 11 is for. We're to do all the things in verse 10 because the grace of God has come, has appeared. The ground of our ability is the coming, the first coming, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And only when we embrace this incarnation of Christ, this first coming of Christ, only then do we have the ability to teach and to live out Verses 1 through 10. So this morning are you here and do you believe in the first appearing of Christ? It's the greatest question you could ever give an answer to. 
most important question you'll ever be confronted with. But look at the second appearing. Verse 13. Verse 11, we're, we're looking back at the grace of God that has appeared. In verse 13, we're waiting, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's future tense. And we live right in between. Jesus Christ, just as He is the grace of God in His first coming, Jesus Christ is the glory of our great God in His second coming. He will appear again. It is a guarantee. It's the last promise of God that we're waiting for yes to, and it will be yes in Christ Jesus only. The second coming is where Jesus Christ will come again on a day that has been guaranteed and promised. This is the day we, the Christian church, long for and hope for and yearn for and expect. We expect this day. Because God's told us to expect it. As we look towards this day, we are progressively growing in Christ's likeness that we gain as a result of looking back to another day. And on this day, this future day, we will be delivered from the presence of sin once and for all. So, we're delivered from the power of sin on the cross. We're delivered from the penalty of sin in the resurrection. And we're delivered from the presence of sin at the second coming. And we will then live for all of eternity with no sin anywhere to be found or named or numbered amongst us. Forever. The battle will be over. We will not even have to contend with the flesh anymore. And so this gives us hope to endure in doing good works in the present as we wait for that future day. We live between two appearances. I've just put you on a map, a theological, doctrinal map of the history of Christianity. So today, we were right to understand that we live in what Paul calls in verse 12, the very last part of verse 12, the present age. And in verse 13, we live in this present age waiting for a blessed hope of a future appearance. That's where we are right now. We live in a time where we look in two directions. We've said this so often over the years. We look back to the grace of God in the incarnation of Christ where we were saved, and this view has a following impact on us. We are thus trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and we are able to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, verse 12, because we look back at something that happened that profoundly impacted us and changed us. But also in the present age, we look forward to the glory of God and the return of Christ, and we hope, and therefore we endure, and the effect on us is this. In that process, Christ will purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So looking backwards, 
enables us to do good works. Looking forward makes us zealous to do those good works that we're enabled to do. And God is the source of motivation and strength to do verses 1 through 10. Period. You don't do it in the flesh. When we look in both directions, we are enabled and zealous. When our doctrine is right about the past and the future and everything in between that's found in the Scriptures, our character and our living will be right. And no one will be able to revile us, disregard the Word of God because of us, make a mockery of the Gospel, and be legitimate in doing so. They will do so only at their own so we are to do this every day in our lives together as a church we're to look both directions every day in the life of our church and we are to live out verses 1 through 10 every day in the life of our church hebrews 3 12 instructs us this way take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living god listen to this but exhort one another every day so long as it's called today. There's the present. Exhort each other every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We hold our original confidence by looking back to what he did and we do it firmly to the end looking forward to his second coming. And we do that every day as long as it's called today. And that is your role as saints who have a responsibility to do the work of ministry. And that is our role as elders to do that with you, but also to equip you to do that. And our greatest instrument of equipping you is a pulpit and a book and a lectern in the chapel on Wednesday nights, and 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, we are to instruct you and equip you so that we can all do the work of the ministry. That's a church in order. That's a healthy church. But we're also to do this very often in not a daily manner, but in a very formal manner. We're to look back and we're to look forward often, often, as a congregation. And that's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. There's a moment in the life of a church where there is a formality of looking back and looking forward. And in that moment, older men are encouraging younger men and older women are encouraging younger women to look both directions. And in so looking to be able to fulfill the character qualities that are expected of a church member. And so we're going to do that this morning. In conjunction with remembering the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And doing so as we see a day drawing near where he will come again. In this meal we look back. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to look back in this meal 
And we're going to say to one another, look back. Look at what he did for us. The grace of God appeared. And he broke his body and he shed his blood for us, even though he was pure and perfect. We're going to proclaim that to one another. That's why we do this congregationally as a meal together. We don't do this in the privacy of our own homes. And in this meal, we look forward because we declare the Lord's death until he comes again is what Paul instructs us when he led us through the supper elements. So this morning, if you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ and his substitution for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead on the third day, if you believe this and if you've declared this as Case did this morning in baptism, We invite you, you don't have to be a member of our church, you have to be a member of Christ's church. We invite you to come to the table figuratively. We're going to bring the table to you, but to come to the table and to remember, to look back, to declare to us what Christ has done for us. I'm going to ask the men to come forward now, and I'd like to pray, and then we will distribute the elements, and let's hold all the elements together, and we'll take them one one at one time together as a congregation and in silence by eating and drinking we will declare sound doctrine to one another and we will honor the lord in what he's provided for us in jesus christ let's pray oh father we thank you for this instruction that you've given us where would we be without knowing what you expect of us But more than that, where would we be without knowing what you've done for us so that we can meet your expectations? Father, I pray that today you would remind us in looking backwards and looking forwards that we cannot boast in anything other than Jesus Christ, the grace of God and the glory of God. We pray that you would strengthen us we take these two views in this present day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.